Welcome to the Business Influencer Podcast, where we interview thought leaders and entrepreneurs and business leaders on the latest thinking in business. We cover topics such as leadership, tech, entrepreneurship, economics, and subjects like finance. Uh, you can listen to the podcast on YouTube and the usual platforms. Uh, please leave a review. Uh, we will be eternally grateful. Um, you can follow us on social media. And of course, you can subscribe to the magazine too. My name is Ninda Johal, and in this episode, I speak to the CEO of DHL Supply Chain UK and Ireland, Saul Resnick. Uh, Saul was one of our key panellists at the recent Midlands Economic Summit, where he wowed over 500 people in the audience as to how DHL is not only tackling the sustainability issue, but is actually leading the way. He also gave valuable insights into how he motivates and sustains a fantastic culture in this humongously huge company. A really insightful episode with a very inspirational business leader, Sol Resnick. Good morning, Sol. Morning, Ninja. How are you? Listen, it's, uh, it's sunny in Milton Keynes. Actually, I've never been to Milton Keynes before, so it's my first ever trip to Milton Keynes. Um, You'll have to send a postcard home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Well, listen, welcome to the Business Influencer Podcast. Um, interesting discussion I think we're going to have around, for those who don't know, supply chain management um, and what that means to the UK economy. But before I kick into mm -hmm. those kind of things, let's just, just a bit of a background on you then. Uh, so you've been at DHL. This is one of the sort of the big units they've got here for 18 years. Uh, you were, you've now been CEO of UK and Ireland for a year and a half. That's about that, yeah. Australia, I know the accent's not Australian, but um, <laughs> you've been a CEO at ANZ in Australia for six years and before that for 10 years in healthcare. The accent is? South Africa, born and bred in South Africa, schooled, university, worked there for the first seven or eight years of my career, probably a little bit longer actually, before I moved to Australia. Well, for a South African who's lived in Australia, you have a fantastic understanding. Sorry, just before we chatted about football, premiership <laughs> football. But that's uh, another time for discussion for another time. So, so when we talk about supply chain management and DHL, mm -hmm. um, just some stats for you. So the UK's logistics market, moving goods around, is estimated at, in American dollars, $481 billion for this year. Mm -hmm. And it's expected to grow by another 6% to 652 billion by 2028. In terms of the UK economy, there's a GVA contribution of 139 billion. Now, I must concede when I thought of DHL, it took me back to my music days when the DHL used to come down and pick up, but that's different, we used to pick up my CDs and then send them all around the world. But of course, you're something different in terms of supplies. And of course, COVID was an incredibly interesting time um, because all of us, particularly when you look at supply chain, we wondered whether goods would get to where they were yeah. supposed to get to. Um, and of course, recently, and of course during COVID we had container problems, moving ship goods around. And of course, until very recently, we had rising oil prices, petrol prices. And of course, let's not even think about the supply of drivers. So explain to us then, explain to the audience why is logistics so important when you think about 
even things like supermarkets? Well, I think in the question, in the build-up to your question, you've probably touched on a number of those aspects mm. which impact just how critical supply chains are. And that's what we do. DHL supply chain, as the name suggests, is we see ourselves as an essential part of everyday life because what we're doing is ensuring that economies run. You touched on the, the GDP impact that supply chains have globally and specifically here in the UK. You know, all one has to think about is that if we didn't do our jobs appropriately and properly, and by that I mean the movement, storage and transportation of uh, the right product to the right place at the right time, mm. then you wouldn't be able to go to the, the supermarket and pick up the, the items that you're looking for there. You wouldn't be able to go to the clothing store and, and find the right size of the right garment or whatever it is that you seek at that time um, and extrapolate that to your, any commodity that you can imagine. Um, and that's what we do. We're a supply chain organization where we have hundreds of warehouses. In our, in our UK and our business, we have 45,000 people um, who represent multiple industries in ensuring that their products and services are delivered on time, in the right place, in the right time, to where they need to go to. And um, it's to supermarkets, it's to high street stores, it's to people's homes, it's to hospitals, it's to manufacturing plants. It really touches everything. And the impacts, the, the source impacts that you reference, oil prices, container shortages, uh, people shortages, uh, lockdowns, all of those things in one way or another impact our ability to do the jobs that we're required to do um, and make sure that we're doing them on a consistent basis. Because the one thing that people will identify with is that, or perhaps not identify with, is when our name is being spoken about, that's generally when we're not doing our jobs. It's when so you're like the referee in a premiership football match. Ideally, if you, if you, you don't want to be referee, spoken about. Yeah, if you spot the referee, there's something going wrong here. Yeah, if he's getting too much of the limelight. And yeah. from our perspective, we don't want to be the ones being spoken about. We just want to be doing our jobs and everything else happens around us. Um, and, that's, and that's the art of, of doing a good job. Interestingly, you mentioned COVID as well. Um, and I suspect we might deep dive, uh, dive in mm. that a little bit deeper. But during COVID was the first time in my career, 28 years of being in supply chain in various forms, that supply chain became a topic, a real topic. You know, people... When I used to go to barbecues mm. or household parties and you say you're in supply chain, that oh, that's great. Not really know or be that interested in what, that, what it is you did and go to the next topic. Whereas now people are saying, oh, what about the vaccines? What about this? What about that? So it became very much part of our, our common understanding, our common um, language. I think we've all just taken it, as you said, for granted. Yeah. We just think things turn up. I paid a visit downstairs and... Um, and actually, I got an understanding of how precise your systems have to be, how innovative you have to be to get goods supply chain from A to B on time, as you said, at the right price, mm. at the right quantity, the right quality. Uh, quite extraordinary. Now, just a bit about DHL. You referred to 40,000 employees just in this kind we'll, we'll pick that up a bit later. So DHL is a multinational what is it, 50 years old, I think you just said a few minutes ago, 50 years old? Yeah, so there are a few, just briefly, there are a few um, brands, well, a few divisions in the group. So the holding company is GPDHL, which is Deutsche Post DHL. So we've got the German post office, which is the legacy business. Uh, Deutsche Post bought DHL, which had been established in, as you correctly say, 1969, the, uh, about 50 plus years ago. 
and that was the logistics side of the business, which uh, which further strengthened Deutsche Post reach. And now globally, we have we're within the brand DHL. It's in every single country and region globally, 220 around the world, um, and that's. Most of what people would know, DHL, the planes flying around delivering small parcels um, on an express basis globally. Our division is DHL supply chain. We're in fewer countries, around 60 countries, um, but all the major uh, large um, economies. And we're uh, an on in, in-country service provider of a warehouse and transport solution, by and large, with some ancillary services beyond that. So it's a complex organisation. It's not. It's yes. not easy to navigate. And and of course, we'll talk about how do you navigate around forty thousand employees. That's, that's a lot of people. Never mind your strategic role in keeping the UK moving along. So, so lots of things have happened. And we've talked about COVID, and we're going to talk about COVID a bit more. But the one that I suppose is now very recent, and I know they've sort of got over the line, is the Brexit mm-hmm. problem. So. Supply chain, so black country where I'm from, automotive, rely on just in time, goods coming just in time. And then, so how did somebody who experts in supply logistics, how did you cope with Brexit and potentially not just in time, but now just in case, <laughs> because you're not sure if things are going to arrive and of course COVID didn't help. So how did you as a, as a business navigate around that? Or has it not affected you? It has affected us materially. Uh, I think there's a definite segue between the COVID and Brexit scenarios and how it impacts our facilities and our, our, our macro environment. Because what you, you mentioned there, just in case, a lot of the warehouse, well, a lot of our customers who store products in our warehouses, whether they be automotive manufacturers from, from your neck of the woods or um, general manufacturers, consumer, retail, etc., their supply chains were impacted primarily from the east when COVID broke out initially, yeah. from China specifically. And there was a large amount of, I'd call it panic buying in some extents, yeah. where there was concern that they wouldn't be able to secure supply. So hypothetically, if an organization had 60 days worth of safety stock in a facility, like the one downstairs that you went into earlier, there was a lot of manufacturers, there were a lot of manufacturers who said, well, Perhaps we should increase that safety stock to 70, 80, 90 days, which on the face of it doesn't sound that material. But in essence, you could see a 50% uplift in the stock holding. Now, when you're holding a few million pallets worth of product, if every manufacturer does that, that's a hell of a lot of buildings you have to put up or have yeah, space to space. put up for yeah. in a very short space of time, which is not necessarily practical. So there was massive impacts on the assumed elastic elasticity of our walls, which... It doesn't really apply. Um, and that was an impact. So how we managed that and how we, obviously, we, we did take on quite a number of facilities globally yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to accommodate as much as what we could. But then you also see the flip side of that is that as uh, supply chain stabilize and as you find a more normalization of economies and the what was happening in the e-com space coming down to a, a, a new norm again, mm. but below what we saw in COVID, suddenly your volumes going outbound reduced and therefore the, the inbound also reduced as a byproduct of that. So you see these constant ebbs and flows of what's required from us. And we're the constant in the middle that has to have predictable capacity and um, capacity in labor as well as in facilities to meet, in demand, uh, to meet the demands of our customers. So it's been very challenging. Um, 
I think where we've managed to do this successfully is we have a very large footprint. We're a, you know, mm. we're a 600,000 people global organization, you mentioned, so we're a very significant organization. We have the balance sheet that we could rely on to access capital to, to build new facilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also have the ability to draw labor into our organization because we are recognized as a, as a good employer. Uh, we have fantastic relations with our employees. Um, and we've, we've generally had people to stick with our organization for many, many years um, across all levels of our organization. So all of those attributes enabled us to... to no, I won't say comfortably, but probably better than most, meet the challenges that were thrown our way. So, so during COVID, um, so, so, um, a couple of my friends have got some large businesses that make cardboard. Mm-hmm. And um, so during COVID, suddenly it went through the roof. And I said, so what's your biggest challenge? I said to him. And they said, um, actually, um, getting hold of cardboard because Amazon were cleaning up because they were getting all the cardboard for obvious reasons during COVID. Um, so how did you cope then with the huge, just with the logistics you were saying with people, how did you cope with, because I mean, if I recall, there was lack of drivers and you've talked about space now. So how did you cope with that kind of complexity, particularly on the people side? I know you talked about being a good employee. Was it easy? And of course, one of the things with Brexit was we lost a lot of drivers. Mm-hmm. So, so how did you get around the driver thing? How did you, what was that? Well, we, we saw a, swift, a shift in equilibrium, whereas historically the, um, the, 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 the balance of power, I would say, resided more with the employer than the employee for a period yeah, of time. Yeah, yeah. During COVID and the Brexit, well, certainly after, certainly during Brexit, we saw that yeah. That power shifted. Yeah, flipped. And there you saw hyperinflationary impact on labor, yeah. on wages as well. But uh, a lot of movement in the markets, labor yeah. markets. Um, and people could really pick and choose between jobs that they wanted to, that they, they felt that they were attracted to. So for us as an employer, what hasn't changed is our consistent focus on our people. And it's authentic. So we didn't have to pivot in, in many ways to remain attractive as a venue or as a destination for our employees to want to be. So when our people come through our facilities, when they walk through, it's it's a environment that we feel is welcoming. Um, it's safe above everything else. Um, it's clean. It's we pay a fair wage, and uh, we do a lot of training and investment in our people to ensure that they are, um, you know, that their aspirations and expectations are well met. We also had to, in some cases, specifically you mentioned drivers. We went. We we built a drivers training academy. Okay. So that we could convert people who historically perhaps hadn't thought about becoming drivers or perhaps wanted to become drivers but didn't know how to do it so that we could actually train people up to become um, heavy good vehicle drivers and the like. And so we've done that for a period of time. In fact, uh, we're still doing that to an extent. But uh, that that crunch in terms of supply has, has, has reduced somewhat now. But we had, to, we had to do a lot of different things in that space. But as I said, the consistent theme for us was we relied on our brand and our integrity in the process of how we deal with our individuals to ensure that we attracted either our kind of people, but most importantly, we retained the people that, um, that want to see themselves here for the long term. Interesting that you got around the crunch by training them yourself. That's interesting because there was that feeling that you couldn't train drivers up that quickly. So, yeah, the drivers, but you managed to get around it. And as 
pretty well outside of the box thinking, really, that to train them yourself. Yeah, well, we had the tools. In fact, you've, there's some video footage of me reversing a 40-odd tonner truck, not particularly well, but uh, thankfully I didn't cause any damage. And I have great respect for those drivers because it's a very tough job um, and probably one that is not as respected as maybe it could be. But, um, you know, I think once you've done something like that yourself and you see what it's, how hard it can be, mm. you have a newfound respect for the drivers of these heavy good vehicles on our roads. Um, if you look around the news... Um the environment is right up at, high up in the agenda. Uh, and I know at COP26, 27, they're still trying to work out how to get the globe operating together. But you think of DHL, you think of trucks, you think of vehicles, you think of petrol, you think of diesel, you think of fumes, you think of emissions. So you're right in the thick of it. One would think from the outside is that surely uh, driverless trucks, driverless cars. and So how do you get around being challenged by someone to say, you're the worst polluters around. You should get your things off and put them all on trains and we should never have any lorries. How do you get around probably the biggest challenge I think people will throw at you? Yeah, that's a very fair challenge, a very fair uh, question. Again, I, th I feel that like we're a leader in the space. Uh, before any other logistics organisation, certainly, and before most organisations were even thinking about setting t targets, we were setting ourselves um, very, very resilient or very robust uh, environmental tar um, targets for ourselves, going back, I think, as far as 2007. Wow. So we were the first organisation to set a zero emission target, wow. which, it is, which is in place by 2050. Um, with a 50% reduction, I beg your pardon, a 30% reduction by 2020. I stand to be corrected on that exact number, but um, and continual goals and objectives um, along the way, and we've we've hit and achieved, in fact, exceeded all those milestones, and we will continue to do that. So we're very, very conscious of leading the industry as the biggest brand, perhaps in the industry right now, um, on that journey. We see it as everyone's responsibility, not just ours. But we certainly led the way. If you look at our aircraft, we've we've spent an enormous amount of money on um, on aviation fuel or on carbon neutral aviation fuel. We've spent uh, we've made a lot of investment in environmentally friendly solutions, carbon neutral solutions from a biogas perspective for our trucks to convert diesel into biogas and reusing uh, natural resources. We've just recently brought the first uh, four electric high good, uh, heavy good vehicle trucks into the market um, with partnership with Volvo. So we're really confronting this head on. We're not shying away from the, t the responsibility we have as an organization. We do all our buildings that we put up, including the one that you're, on, that you're in right now, are environmentally neutral from a carbon, or carbon neutral from an environmental perspective, I should say. And we'll continue down that journey. So we're, we're very sincere about it. Our, our people expect it of us. Our shareholders expect it of us and certainly our customers expected of us. So we're very much on that journey and have been for a long time. I was wondering around, um, you've got solar panels. Yes. So that means you don't need to as much <clears throat> energy. And interestingly, you've got a rainwater system. Is that right, that it picks up the rain and that allows you then to flush? Yeah, for certain activities in the, in the offices and latrines and what have you, we can use um, grey water for that. So... so you know, you know, we're all used to all the kerfuffle now flying around about uh, environmental targets, but 
2007, I mean, that's going back out time. So did you find people, did DHL find people saying, what are you talking about? What's up with these net zero targets? I mean, you were so well in advance. Was that or was it something you just took on board regardless of, of perhaps even investors saying, what are you doing back in 2007? Well, I think to be fair, it was a 2007 baseline that we, mm -hmm. we probably took on a year or two post that. But, yeah. you know, to credit to our global board, um, they recognized and they saw that this was something that had to be dealt with. Um, and yeah, I suspect there were some, at the, particularly going back 10, 10 or so plus years, that weren't as positive about the journey that we were on as perhaps they are today. That's right. But it was it was rather prescient. And, uh, you know, give credit where it's due. The guys, our team, our board, saw that this was something that had to be dealt with. And despite the pressure that they would have been under in terms of short-term objectives, um, we haven't wavered from either. We've still continued as a group to achieve our our numbers and our commitment to our shareholders. But um, we added a fourth bottom line. So our three bottom lines have always been our, our shareholders, our people, and our customers. And we added a fourth one about being a responsible um, corporate citizen as well. So our responsibility to the environment. And that's when that became topical. And um, I think it's just been really well received. Our, our customers now expect that from everybody in the market, which is great because I don't think we see being environmentally conscious as a competitive advantage. In fact, we don't. We see it as perhaps leading the way that all of us should get on board with, all, our, all of our industries should get on board with, because not one of us has a, the domain over the environment. We're all responsible. And you're right, trains, oh, trains, trucks, planes, automobiles are big users of, um, of carbon. So we need to all have a responsibility in reducing that. Did you find, though, because of Ukraine and the energy crisis, that the market slightly turned backwards and said, well, actually, we're not that fussy now about ESG, actually. And the stakeholders, investors said, well, actually, we've just got to be realistic now. Did you, did you find that or were, were you still saying, no, 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 we're going to continue regardless of what the environment around us, the economic environment was saying? Because there was that tilt towards back to fossil fuel and... I suspect in general, business sense and general business populations, your, your question may probably have some relevance. Um, but certainly from a DHL perspective, we haven't wavered from what, what our objectives have been. Yes, there's energy crisis. Yes, we've seen the impact that this has had on us yeah. globally um, in costs and what have you. But I haven't heard anyone in my organization, in our organization, talk about, well, let's review our targets. Let's, let's soften okay. our targets. It's, um, it's been full steam ahead. Excuse the pun. Now, I'm going to put you on the spot, and you can be diplomatic. Oh, you haven't put you... me on the spot yet. Okay, yeah. good. <laughs> right. So you can be diplomatic. Do you think, well, seriously, government's going to be able to hit those deadlines? Because I know the EU have moved theirs, and I know the US are throwing, what's it called? It's a strange name, IRA, Inflation Reduction Act, you know, to increase uh, green investment. But do you think, as someone who's a business leader, do you think the pressure slightly of the government might tilt it? Do you think, or do you think... Can't really sort of say. I can't imagine. I cannot personally imagine a scenario where we don't achieve our targets, and um, I'm optimistic that perhaps we can even exceed our targets. We are hell bent on ensuring that we are carbon neutral by 2050, which was always our given target. Yeah. And I don't see anything veering us off that that topic. Um, you know, the one thing I have to say, with quite a element of pride in, it, is that the organisation takes us seriously and. Uh, 
we're we're not deviating. We're on target with all the targets we've set ourselves, the 2020 targets, um, the the way we're adopting electric vehicles where we can, and biogas and hydrogen in the work that's happening mm -hmm. in that space. It's all on track and will continue to be on track, and it's very much part of our thinking in every business case application that we put forward. Thought is given to what we do from a go green perspective. Final question before we leave the agenda on this one. Do you think there's going to be enough infrastructure in place for us to have electric vehicles to allow goods to be delivered from A to B to C to D? Do you think, and how long do you think we'll be before we have the infrastructure? It's great having targets. It's great having the ambition and the vision to do it. But commentators are saying there is no way that infrastructure is going to be in place. And I ask of you because with that, that kind of infrastructure, are you going to be able to deliver and deliver on your on your targets? I think if we're wholly reliant purely on electric vehicle solutions, then you may well have a point. Our strategy is not on one specific source, so we're looking at multiple sources. So, you know, hydrated vegetable oil as a solution where you're using typical combustible engines, diesel engines, but running on HVO. Um, we're showing on tests we run, I think, an 82% reduction in carbon emissions from using that as a solution. We are using biogas, as I mentioned earlier, CNG and LNG. Uh, we're quite far down the path in certain parts of our, the globe on the technology that hydrogen brings us and uh, fuel cells, hydrogen-charged fuel cells. So it's not all things attached to electric vehicles only. There are multiple um, uh, prongs to this attack. So I feel we're, we're equipped. We have a diverse strategy to achieve it. Um, and, when, and as I say, we're not purely reliant on whether we'll have electric vehicle battery charging facilities around the country to meet our demands. Now, let's talk about you. 40,000 employees around the country. Um, you're at the helm. You, you've got to lead these people. You're born in Africa, South Africa. You've worked in Australia. Are there cultural differences in managing organisations across those sort of three dimensions? Or are people people? And are, is culture culture, irrespective of whichever country? You've got a good, unique perspective mm. here. So what do you think? Well, firstly, I'll correct you a little bit, Nindra. It's actually 45,000 people. So Oh, sorry, 45,000 no, even right. more. I don't, okay. want, I don't want to uh, <laughs> let any of our people down. And... Um, Yes, of course, there, there's, there are differences and there are cultural differences which I can talk to. Fundamentally, the, the, the question had two prongs to it. One is people are people. Mm. People demand and should demand to be treated with respect um, and have their, their differences appreciated and respected and, and treated as well as they should be. Um, that doesn't change from geography to geography. Culturally, the way I and leaders in our business inter interact and engage with people is somewhat different in, in, in certain geographies. Um, if I look at it, South Africans, generally speaking, have got quite a reputation for being direct and to the point. Don't beat around the bush that much. Australians um, are very, my experience again, this is quite a generalization, mm -hmm. but my experience working there, it was much less hierarchical, um, not as direct as, say, South Africa. Okay. But then if you translate that into a UK environment, a lot more direct than what the UK is. And my experience in the UK is that people are quite polite. Okay. Um, Interesting. They don't necessarily confront the issue straight up. There's the British a British reserve. 
there's an element of reserve and um, trying to say the right thing without being seen to be offensive or rude in any way. So there's a, there's a journey that I've had to go on in terms of my management style, I suppose, as I interact with different people across the business to ensure that my message is not diluted or misunderstood. Um, and the intent of behind the messages is getting through to the people that I'm talking to or engaging with at the time. Um, and, you know, it's great from a personal perspective. It's a learning experience. I get to, mm. I mean, how lucky am I? I've got to experience different cultures, different um, geographies, different people. Um, and I'm, I'm truly very fortunate to have had that experience. And I'm, I'm loving the experience here in the UK and getting to know different obviously a different country, landscape, but also yeah. the people within it that make it so unique and so interesting. So does that imply you have to use different language then, a different way? I'm, I'm certainly in the British Reserve then. Do, do you have to pull stuff out of people because they're not telling you what they want and do you have to sort of encourage that sort of communication? Is that, is that a different skill? Does that make sense? Because they're not telling you what maybe you need to hear. Um, is just, that what leaders need to do, sort of? adapt and try and get things out of people. There's definitely, a diff I've had to uh, adopt a different approach in certain scenarios, not always. Mm -hmm. And again, it depends on the level of individual that I'm talking to within the organization and the, yeah. the message I'm trying to get across. A lot of it, from my experience, comes from building respect for, for each other, but building trust between myself and the employees, um, that they need to know that I'm sincere, that ultimately what I want is the best for our organization, which is our people. Yeah. and our shareholders and our customers, all our three bottom lines, as well as our environment. And that's what the questions that I ask of people, the answers that I give to people, are all guided by those principles. And I feel that wherever, whether that's South Africa, Australia, or the UK, or wherever else I land up in the world, um, that won't change. As long as people feel that A, they're being heard, that B, they're being respected, and that they can trust myself and the, the management team that, that works with me, then ultimately we'll get the end objectives that we seek, which is to improve our business, to grow our business, to grow opportunities for our people, um, and to give them a safe and, and nurturing environment to work in. 45,000 people is a lot of people. You can't know everything. So how do you embed your way of working so that all 45,000 people understand, because obviously, you talk about it being more hierarchical compared to, say, Australia. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot more levels before the thing Chinese whispers and the whole message. Yeah. So how do you know, sitting here, that actually those 45,000 people, I think, are on the same page? How, how do you, I mean, that's a question for most leaders of people. How do you test check? How do you check that, that it, they understand what you're saying? Well, firstly, it's not just an I. There's no I in, in our business, not mm -hmm. even... Not even once. It's, there's a, a big and capable management team, layers of management individuals who are very capable and skilled and who have my entire trust. And my first objective with them is to ensure that we are, we are aligned, that we are speaking the same language, that the direction we're heading in is consistent across all the, you know, the most senior managers that we have in our organization. And by that, by making sure that we have simplified objectives which everybody can understand and relate to. The thing that, I've, that I focus on most is making sure that we're not trying to be all things to all people. We're, we're clear on what success looks like and how we achieve that success and every individual's responsibility and accountability to their teammates and colleagues in achieving that, that success. Once we're aligned, 
it becomes a lot easier because if the top two, 300 people in a 45,000 people organization are reliant on what success looks like and what they each have to do in order to achieve that success, then translating that down to the next level and the next level below that becomes a lot easier. It'll always be a journey. You'll never absolutely have everybody singing from the same hymn sheet. But fundamentally, as long as you're consistent, as long as you're honest, as long as you're fair and reasonable, um, and, you're, and you're giving people the feedback and the direction that they seek, then fundamentally you should be getting more right than you're getting wrong. And that's, that's how I try and achieve my objectives. So how do you, how do you keep a sense then? So, so, so I like that, not I, but we and team. How do you get a sense check of what the culture is? So, so you walk in day one mm -hmm. and you think, well, I wonder what the culture is like. Then you, you quickly work out the international dynamics and the differences. But you've now got your message filtering down through your teams and consistency. I like that. Consistency and honesty and transparency. How do you continue to monitor that culture? How, what, what, what comes back to you to say, yeah, we're on the right path or crikey, something's gone wrong here. Well, not quite. Is it the numbers? Do the numbers tell you something? Are the numbers the sales? Or what do you use to test? Yeah. There's no question numbers have a big role to it. We do surveys, we do pulses of our customers, of our people, mm -hmm. our employees, and then obviously there's financial results for, the, for another metric. So we're doing those consistently, and that gives you a very good indication. But for me, nothing beats walking the floor. Mm -hmm. and I do a lot of that. Walking into a warehouse or an office environment and talking with people and engaging with them. And the first telltale sign for me, specifically in a warehouse environment, is do our colleagues look at me in the eye when they talk to me? Do they say hello? Good when I say hello, do I say good morning? When I say good morning, is the floor clean? Is the place safe? Is it a welcoming environment? For me, those are very quick telltale sounds. I've walked into warehouses where we're not, we're not on our top of our game. I mean, it's quite obvious, and there's generally a leadership issue on that side, is my experience. Um, but by and large, those are the exception. And hopefully you saw it yourself when you walk through the morning. People will smile at you. They'll engage with you. Our people want to be here. Our employee engagement rates are high. They've improved, um, we're, we're continuing to improve our response rates, our people want to give feedback are very high, and um, our tenure is high, it's better than the industry. So our staff retention rates are higher than, than industry normal, than industry norms, and uh, we continuously aim to improve on those. So fundamentally, those are key numbers and metrics, but it's the, it's the subjective, it's the intangibles that you see when you actually walk the floor and talk to people and engage with people in a meaningful and real way that um, they know that it's for real and I know that it's working or it's not working. And uh, that's always going to be my litmus test. So tell you what made me smile. We were sorting out the timings and they said, oh, Saul's busy till 11.30, can we? I said, fine. What I didn't expect was to suddenly catch you in the canteen <laughs> talking to people. Because I thought, oh, it must be some big Zoom meeting. And that, you're, you're absolutely right, you're walking the tour and you're seeing what's happening and to find you in the canteen was extraordinary and and I thought well yeah well okay so that's how you get the pulse rather than stuck up in an ivory you were right there in the middle of it which I found really amusing look at the end of the day our business is a warehouse and distribution mm -hmm. business we're not a, an ivory tower organization that's not how we lead that's not how we engage and that's not what inspires me so I'm much happier walking the floor talking to it or getting to a truck with a driver and having a chat with them um, and uh, that's not that's not insincere. That's just what I enjoy. So it's it's not a hardship for me to go to go be having you know be 
at the forefront with, yeah. our, with our people. And fundamentally, you know, how I see leadership, and I've always seen leadership, is an inverted triangle. Um, a lot of people see hierarchies with the, with the CEO at the top of the triangle. Um, I actually see the triangle facing downwards. And at the top of the triangle are our employees, the frontline workers who deal most with our customers. If they are engaging with our customers and giving our customers a good experience, whether that be the, the last mile delivery driver or the last person who touches a package before it leaves our warehouse, if they're doing a great job, that means the people supporting them, their managers or their supervisors are doing a good job, and so on all the way down to the bottom of that triangle, which is where I sit, which is fundamentally to empower the people in my organization, in our organization, to make their employees' lives better. And as long as we're all doing that, then the people right at the top are the frontline workers in our business. So it's interesting. So as you wander around, you're, you're seen as open. You're seen as, come and tell me what you think. And, and that allows you then almost to touch on that culture, to see how people are feeling mm -hmm. rather than just numbers and surveys and things. But you can actually feel it by talking to people. Now, I must admit, I think DHL, I think a moving box A to B, commoditized, down to price. Can you pick it up on time? The last thing I would have thought of was the word innovation. Hmm. I, I wouldn't have, and I suspect, but a trip downstairs, actually innovation's at the core of what you do, hmm. at the core. What I didn't know, which I find extraordinary, is that you, when you pick things up that require repairing, extraordinary, you get it repaired. And so that, that completely blew my brain. But, and then it was all this sort of, if there's a problem, there's always a solution, which is what I found was, so how important is innovation then, and how do you encourage people to innovate? It's, it's what differentiates us amongst, amongst our culture the most from our competitors, I believe, is that we're continually innovating. Uh, we have to. We have to stay relevant. If all we're doing is moving a box from A to B, that's a commodity that um, can be quite yep. easily replicated. That's right. But where we're doing it more cost-efficiently, more environmentally sustainably, sustainably where we're doing it... Um, ergonomically better, where we're taking physical actions which are repetitive and not necessarily that challenging, and we're automating that, and we're giving our people more meaningful tasks to do, less physically straining, um, then we're doing better by all aspects, by our customers, by our people, by the environment, etc. So we will continue in innovating. We have done a lot of it. We've, we've invested a lot in accelerated digitalization uh, globally. Um, and that we see as something that we'll continue to do. It can't stop. There is so much new technology out there and there's so much that we have to embrace and, and do better at that we're continually looking at ways that we can implement those kinds of solutions in our facility. And uh, to, to add to that, it's not, as some people cynically might think, to replace labor with, with um, capital. It's actually to enhance the, the, the lives and the, uh, the work that our human capital does, our labor does by ensuring that the menial tasks, the repetitive tasks are done by automation where yeah, possible, so yeah, yeah. and the tasks which require added value are be done by our people. So we're continuing to grow our workforce whilst in parallel implementing automation wherever we can to make our, our, make our jobs simpler and better. I did see the word peppered around, continuous improvement, continuous yes. improvement. So you can see a bit of that Japanese methodology coming into improving production. Interesting what you just said there, because there's a big debate of the last week or so around AI, mm -hmm. around AI replacing jobs. Yeah. But what you've actually said is, well, actually, yes, 
we're bringing in AI and technology, but actually we're employing more people and deploying the people to do the higher level skilled jobs. I suppose my next question, if you pick on that, is I just sort of figured this morning that unemployment has dropped again. So it's getting even tighter mm -hmm. as, a, as a market. And you've talked about how you, you know, pay people well, how you look after people well. Going forward, is that still going to be the key way of getting people in? Because it looks like it's going to get even tighter from what I'm saying on the labour supply. Is, is that still going to be the case? And would technology be the answer to that problem? In other words, if we accept that labour shortages will always be there, is technology and innovation which you're key on? Is that, always, is that now going to be really paramount? I think technology and automation will, will complement the work that our people do, but there's no shortcut in my mind um, as to how we engage with our people, how we treat our people, will be the recipe of success for how we retain our people. Um, we don't want to be a transient workforce for our staff to come and leave because they can get somewhere better or they can be treated better or whatever, somewhere else. Um, if people come into our organisation, by and large, they'll want to stay because we do the right things by our people. Um, and that's what we have to do. We have to be a respectable employer who treats our employees with respect and, and does the right thing by them. But we also want to be an attractive destination for people to come and work because we feel as a, the leading logistics player in this space, um, we're a very stable environment. We've got, we can provide job security. We can provide a lot of value that perhaps other organizations cannot. So that's a, that's a big plus for us. Um, you know, will the labor market tighten further? I'd, it's hard to say. You know, one of the interesting things that I've picked up here is that the a lot of people seem to retire quite early in the UK. Mm. When I say early, you know, I'm seeing people at 55, 56 retiring. COVID, which, I think, had something to do with that. Perhaps, and it's not what I've experienced in, in certainly in Australia. Uh, it wasn't the experience. I question that as well because, you know, this is perhaps going off tangentially, but, you know, people are living longer. The, you know, average lifetime expectancy has increased because of the great healthcare we have nowadays somewhat. Um, and with, with what's happened with inflation and macroeconomic trends, I'm surprised that people can afford to retire at that age right now, not knowing how long they're still going to be around for. So I expect my own personal view is that we will start seeing a lengthening of how long people work for. Not only because of the economic reasons I've just given, because I also think of a sense of purpose. And if you're enjoying your work, you know, then why not continue? You know, continue to your, your 60s as well as you, as long as in, well, well, as long as in, you're able and healthy and willing. So I would also assume that people will start working longer. And we are seeing um, that happen. We're also trying ways to attract people who generally otherwise wouldn't seek work. So it might be um, stay-at-home moms or dads who, who are otherwise feel that it would be hard to get work, um, but offering them shift patterns which are suitable to their lifestyles, you know, around school pickups and four-hour shifts and here and there. So it's part-time permanent work where we can also attract a different source of, of labour or different source of worker to our environments close to where they, they live, um, but without having to have the rigidity of a, you know, 40-hour work week. You said the during COVID it shifted from where employers at the upper hand, but it shifted where actually employees were saying, well, hold on, um, this is, you know, uh, this is, we can now decide. So when you're recruiting, we've got 45,000 people here, 
What are the key things you look for when you recruit, when you see someone sit opposite you? What do you look for? What do you look for in terms of before you're, you're the person I want? Any key things you look for? Well, to be fair, I'm, I'm not really the one at the front line recruiting a lot of our frontline workers per se, so I'm not sitting, spending all day recruiting myself. We have teams of people yeah. who do that. But when I personally interview people yeah. for yeah. management roles yeah. um, and leadership roles, I look for one thing above everything else, and that's attitude. That's my personal take. Um, if you ask me about attitude versus aptitude when looking at an employee or potential employee, I'll always take attitude before aptitude. Clearly, there has to be a base aptitude to do the role. I'm not disputing that or minimizing that. But you can learn a lot of skills. What I find harder to teach people and to uh, have ingrained in people is the attitude that they come with. Do they have that can-do spirit that they want to be better than what they were the day before? Will they want to make things work? Will they want to be part of a team? Do they have drive to succeed? I'm a very passionate and driven individual. And obviously, I seek similar attributes where possible in other individuals as well. So for me, that's probably the one call out is, is the individual's attitude. And you can quickly tell that in their eyes. So piece of advice then. I decided I want to go into logistics. Give me three pieces of advice you'd encourage me. Well, what should, as young master, I'm talking about, you know, a youngster who's now just done a degree and says, what, what key things should they have? Would you encourage if you were going back to say 20 minutes, what would you say to them? What, what sort of attributes should they have now that you sort of yeah. said it's, you know, it's attitude? What sort of? I think the first thing specifically, if you're referring to our industry is, yeah. Don't be scared to get your hands dirty, metaphorically. Get into our warehouse, learn what it is that we actually do. Uh, a lot of people come into the business then because they have a degree behind their name, they want to have a manager title as well. And I'm saying, you know, earn your stripes, go and do the hard yards, go pack the boxes with our employees, look at the, WM, the warehouse management system, get in a truck, deliver the products, do whatever it is mm. that our people at the front line do day in and day out and understand what it is that you can, what they do. So that one day, if you're a leader of those people, you can better appreciate what, they, what they're doing. The second, is never, second thing is to make sure you listen to your customers. Understand what it is the customer is asking you. Seek feedback. And that's not just from the customer, but from your managers and leaders around you as, as much as possible. You know, don't be scared of negative feedback. I personally have learned a lot more from our failures in life than I've learned from the successes. So I, I seek out, I actively seek out feedback on a regular basis, and I encourage, um, I encourage any new applicant into our business to, to seek that feedback. And the third one, which is probably somewhat aligned, but you put me on the spot, so I have to think of three, is remember the ratio of two ears to one mouth. Um, keep that consistent in your mind, is that uh, I had an English teacher at school who used to say, I would rather be thought to fall and keep my mouth shut than open it and remove all doubt. And that's, <laughs> I like that. and that's, that's something quite that's, a good one. That's something like that. that stayed with me for life. And uh, you know, it comes back to the two ears, one mouth scenario. Is that listen more than you talk. Some people feel that they have to talk more and they have to tell the other individual, but you're not really learning when you're talking. So that'd be my third piece of advice. Let me just pick up very quickly. It's the negative thing. A lot of people ask me. How do you deal from mind perspective, mindset perspective, on a knockback? Now you've talked about you encourage, well, a lot of people don't encourage negative feedback. They're shy from it. So you encourage it, but I think a lot of people would say, but how do you get your mind over the knockbacks 
any piece of advice on how people always ask me that how do you how do you overcome negativity bad news something that you might take personal how any any suggestions i don't know well first we we call it developmental feedback in our business so it's not negative it's you know really the, the mindset is if you treat feedback as a gift as we try and train our people to do in the programs that we run then it is an opportunity to improve yourself uh, you know i've I can't think of an of a time where I've received personal criticism. Okay. And I've certainly never given personal criticism. It's always... Well, you might take it personal. You might take it personally, but then that's up to you. Got it. How you receive feedback is up to you. Yeah. If you take it on board that this is something that's going to help my career or help me develop better as a leader, as an individual, as a, as a human being, then great, because then it's an opportunity to in, in, enhance your life. If you are the person who's going to take that personally... Well, you know, that's your shame on you, is my word, because if it wasn't intended that way, then you've misread the situation. And not only have you misread the situation, you've missed an opportunity to develop. Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. So I, I, a little bit that I know, I say, um, don't take it personal. Remove yourself from it, look at the advice, and move on, but take it on board, but don't take it personal. Sure. Right. right, a couple of questions before we wrap up, because I know you're a busy guy. Um, Interesting, through our discussion, you've not said business or company, you've referred to brand. I keep hearing brand, brand, brand. So how important is brand to you? Because you've referred it to a few times. And, and my second and final question to it, actually we'll finish with a real leadership one, is how important is brand then in terms of giving you a competitive advantage? And is it that's what brings people through that front door looking for a job? Because I've heard you say brand, and not many people use that word. You kept saying we're one of the biggest brands. So how important is the word brand, and how do you link that to success? Well, brand is for us, I mean, DHL is a, is a global brand. It's a, mm. a well-known brand, wherever you, whichever corner of the world you are. So... We're fortunate in our organization that we'll, we'll always get opportunities when I talk about new business opportunities and employment opportunities for potential hire, um, hirers or people being hired rather. Um, our brand will attract that. But that doesn't mean anything beyond that first engagement. How our people then interact with the opportunity, whether that's the potential employee, mm. potential customer, whatever, that's what will win or lose the opportunity. Yeah. So the brand is something, and it's of great value because it's certainly an attractive proposition for many people and many companies. But unless our people follow through and demonstrate the high levels of professions that are expected that are associated with that brand, then actually we'll end up doing damage. So it's a responsibility as much as anything else. When you are seen as a leader in the pack, and if your people don't follow suit and behave poorly relative to their expectation, then you've actually done more damage than good. So we consistently remind people that they have a responsibility to uphold the image and the, the value that this brand represents, not just here, but globally. Because if we do damage to a local customer here, that customer could well be part of a multinational organization and that could impact our business mm -hmm. in any other part of the world as well. And what does success look like for you? For me personally? For you and when one day you've done a fantastic job here, you, move, you drive out of there, how will you look back and say... Yeah, I think I a decent job. What does that success look like to you? I'm very driven to 
leave any environment, any engagement, any interaction with whatever kind it is in a better way than I found mm. it. That's, that's what drives me. So if I can objectively and honestly look back whatever period of time it is that when I do leave this role and someone else takes it, have I looked after the role well? Have I been a good custodian of the chair? And have I left it in a better place than I found it? And, you know, history will determine if that's correct or not, if, if, if I've done that or not. But that's my objective. And similarly, when I meet with people, I want to make sure that we refer to it as the shadows we cast. The shadow I've casted on that individual is a positive experience when it comes to certainly our employees, that, that they will look favorably on their interaction and they will see that as something that had some value of some kind to them, or at the very least didn't detract from their perception that they may have had before. Um, I sit on a couple of boards, and one of the questions we always ask our CEO is, is there anything that keeps you awake? Or are you totally chilled? Oh, no, I'm definitely not totally chilled. <laughs> um, well, aside from anything, I've got four children. My youngest is only three, so... Oh, okay. He has, um, he has the propensity to keep me awake. But on a mental side, I do take very personally... I know we spoke about not taking criticism personally, but I do take my responsibility very personally. You mentioned 45,000, we can say that yeah. a lot, but... I have a responsibility in some form or another to make sure that I'm doing the right thing by those people every day. And if I behave poorly or I make the bad decisions or I lead in the wrong way, then potentially I could adversely impact those people. So it's not a responsibility that a responsibility I take lightly. Um, I'm fortunate that it doesn't necessarily cause me a lot of sleepless nights, but sometimes when I'm wrestling with the decision that needs to be made mm. or... Um, a consequence or a potential challenge that's in front of me which has consequences which may impact a group of people, then it is something that keeps me up because they're looking to me to make the best decision in their interests and uh, that's not something I take lightly. Final question. Sure. Three tips, or as many as you want, for leaders running a big organisation like this. What kind of things should they think about? One, two or three things that you would sent to somebody aspiring to be a leader, big leader, and say, these are the three tips I would give you to run a big organization like this? Well, the one I'll give is a tip. The other one is something that I think is skill yeah. set that you have to have. The, the, the tip, I, I believe, um, is to be authentic. You know, you can invest a lot of time and energy trying to be someone that you're not, but that's just too hard, and I can't remember that I wouldn't have the ability to remember the different persona I've taken on. <laughs> if that was what I was about. So I am who I am. I'm authentic to whomever I speak to. And the what motivates me sits consistently behind every interaction I have. So that's the one. The, the tip, I, uh, the skill set that I think people need to develop to be successful mm -hmm. leaders is really to be able to take the complex and simplify that complex scenario for the people that, that follow them. Um, it's no use just repeating a complex theorem or, or philosophy to individuals because you think that makes you sound clever. What actually adds value to people in your organization is to take a complex scenario, which may be very complex, to understand the detail behind that yourself, make sure you understand what that means, and then simplify the outcome mm. that's required from the individuals within your organization by making that message translatable to every person in your business. If you can do that successfully, then I believe you can... Um, you can lead a successful organization. I'm just going to sum up some of the insights. Yeah. You've talked about, actually, it's all about people. It's all about people. 
the importance of culture. You've talked about leading with authenticity. I think communication skills are very important in what you've said. I'm extraordinarily amazed by your commitment to the environment. You've talked about looking after people means getting feedback. Actually, don't worry if it's negative feedback because you can build something constructive from that. You've talked about internal culture and that's been indicated by your staff retention. I love the bit when he says not about I, but about team, talking about alignment, making things simple so people understand it. Uh, be clear on what success looks like. Uh, walk the talk, make sure everybody sees you. Uh, always be honest and consistent and innovation is core to what you do. Um, I think it's been fantastic. I think you've been brilliant in taking that time. Um, and finally, you said, get your hands dirty. Uh, listen to customers. I can't remember that fantastic. I have to go back to recording what your head teacher or your teacher told you. But always two ears is better than one mouth. And um, I think the last thing that I think become really clear to run organizations of any size, it's all about people. Absolutely. So um, I hope your team does well, Thank gets you. into that top four. I won't go any further than that, but uh, you're on your way. Thanks, Thanks very much. Cheers. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Thank you.